vivan los estudiantes, jardín de nuestra alegría. Son aves que no se asustan de animal ni policía. Hello and welcome to Adam and Eve on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Rose Eva Forks Jenkins and I'll be your host for today's episode of Adam and Eve. Thanks for tuning in. Adam and Eve is Edmonton's only feminist news radio show. We are adamant on highlighting, discussing, and engaging with issues that affect women across Edmonton and around the world. For today's episode, we're going to hear an interview that Adam and Eve contributor Luis Cifuentes conducted with Dan Scratch and Julia Dahlman from the Rad Educators Network. First, Luis will fill us in on what the Rad Educators are all about, and then we'll hear more from Julia and Dan as they tell us about what they think the role of education should be, and why educators need to be activists in their own communities. Let's hear more from them. On today's episode, me, Luis, uh, will be talking to Dan and Julia Dalman about education generally and more specifically about political thought in the process of education. We're going to hear from rad community leaders in Edmonton who collaborate and organize with their community to address issues like inequality, sexism, and racism in the education system. Given the current context where we see big capitalist nations struggling to maintain their narratives of freedom and leaders of democracy, as well as their societies confronting their own identities and roles in the democratic process, I wonder what should be the role of professional educators and related works in this process. In Edmonton, there is mostly online group of educators and community members interested in education. The community group congregates every so often to dialogue about the ups and downs in the education world. The name of this organization is Rad Educators Network. They are teachers, community leaders, professors, and researchers who firmly believe that centering the issues of equity and social justice will allow them to create a better learning environment for future generations. To get things started, uh, my name is Luis. I am the producer at Adam and Eve. I am today with uh, Julia Dalman and Dan Scratch. Julia Dalman is a community liaison at Argyle Center uh, slash Metro Continuing Education in Edmonton. And Dan is a teacher at Edmonton Public Schools in Edmonton as well. Uh, Julia and Dan, could you tell us more about yourselves? And while doing so, could you tell us how you became interested in this field of education? Yeah, well, uh, thanks, Luis, for for having us on. We're um, like we're really excited to to talk about Rad and, and the work we do in education. Um, but to get back to your question, so I'm a classroom teacher teaching social studies for roughly 12 years now. I've I've taught a little bit in Ontario, a couple of years in Nova Scotia, and for the last 10 years in Edmonton. And my practice has always been trying to be grounded in equity and social justice education. And for Rad, some little 
project Julia and I started a few number of years ago in terms of how do we create community and relationships among educators who are doing this work and, and thinking about educators in a broad context, not just teachers in a classroom, but anyone working in a school, working with young people, but how do we shift the education system in a good way to tackle the inequities that we face? And so that's a little bit about me and how I became interested in the field of education. Um, probably I didn't like school and, and wanted to see if we could make it a little bit better. So I had a difficult time in high school when I was a kid and arrogantly thought I could do better than what my teachers did. And uh, that's not the best reason to get into education, I don't think. But, um, you know, I thought that teaching and education is a way to help make sense of the world with young people. And I, I feel very privileged that I get to learn about the world with young people every day. And uh, sometimes I can't believe I get paid money to do it. But my interest comes from, from my own struggles in education, for sure. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I kind of relate to that a little bit there. I also want to be an educator. And mm -hmm. I think I can get into the perspective of the student as well, because I saw the limitations I had back then and like what could have been done better by the teachers at that time. So many limitations, right? <laughs> yeah. So now, Julia, could you tell us more about yourself? Uh, sure. So my name is Julia Dahlman. And as you mentioned, I'm a, I'm a community liaison with Edmonton Public Schools. And what uh, my role is, is really to help schools be more responsive to community needs. So schools are situated within communities and we need to be able to be responsive and adapt to what the community's expectations are. So again, kind of as you're saying, you know, you're noticing the limitations and different things when you were in school. And my job is to really try to create innovative programs and uh, different initiatives to be responsive to what the community is looking for in education systems. So I sort of fell into education. I, I didn't mean to end up here. I actually have a science degree and a minor in international development, but I've always been interested in community organizing. And so I was in a program, actually Dan did the program as well, a little bit later than me, but I was in a program called Next Up. And it, this was a, a young program for people that are interested in social justice initiatives. And what it really taught me was that there are actual strategies. If you are somebody that cares about creating social change, there are real tactics and strategies that you can do to implement social change. And so that really got me thinking about how we talk about youth and how we talk about youth apathy in our education system. You know, we really talk to youth and we say, you can change the world. You're going to do all of these wonderful things, but we're going to give you absolutely no skills on how to do that and <laughs> go forth. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so I was giving a talk about how we can engage youth voice in community organizing. And there was a principal in the audience. And so she offered me a job and, and hired me into the Edmonton Public public school system, where I got to then found a program called the Global Cafe and, and really talk to students about activism and social justice work. And since then have been really engaging students and parents and community members in how we can make our schools more equitable and socially just. That's awesome. To start the conversation, have you seen a significant shift in the philosophy or theory of education in the last few decades? And as a follow-up, what challenges are ahead for the field of education from your perspective? You know, when I first started teaching, it was it was hard to say the word social justice. It was difficult. Like I remember being nervous putting up a Malcolm X poster in my classroom or even talking about social justice with my colleagues and just kind of keeping it very to myself. And, and maybe that, that was just my own interpretation or expectation as a new teacher coming in. I didn't know if it was safe to talk about these things, but obviously now I feel much different about doing this work kind of publicly and not hiding what we do, but being very upfront with what we do. Like it's definitely shifted in that way. But 
you know, I think too, and I'm going to throw a lot of love over to Julia and the work that she does. Like when I first moved to Edmonton, I was upset, I was upset with myself with like the lack of community I was able to create when I lived in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Like I couldn't really find a community there. And when I got to Edmonton, I was like, I really want to contribute to what people have going on here. And we're asking around to people I'm starting to meet. And everyone said, you got to meet Julia Dahlman. You got to meet Julia Dahlman. She's doing some amazing work at JP with the Global Cafe. And that to me is like the really innovative work that's coming up, you know, that work with young people and centering student voice. And so a lot of the forces of education remain to keep things the same. Uh, there's a lot of forces in education that drag their feet, refuse to change, refuse to even use research to support practices or policies in classrooms or schools or within our entire system, that is always going to be a, a fight. And that's always going to be a work within the institution itself and, and why we need people on the outside and within the, the system to push it. But I think the really innovative work that Julia and, and her colleagues are doing, as well as folks across the province in different schools, like that student-led, student voice work, allowing young people to have a voice in their learning and, and what they do in schools and how they experience school, to me, is the heart of what education could be. And so it's really exciting, I think, where we're going. Uh, and I'm really excited at the, the journey ahead because I think it's it's much brighter now than it was at least when I started. You know, I think when you talk about how the philosophy of education has shifted over time, I, I struggle with that question a little bit because I think the purpose of school has always been contested. There has always been a lot of different opinions about what the purpose of school should be and could be. And so, you know, when we think about the amount of alternative education programs that exist, if you think about Waldorf schools or Montessori schools, these are alternative programs that have very specific philosophies that they stick to. And so I think it's important that we understand that even though there is alternative programs out there, it's not to say that you can't have alternative education kind of initiatives happening within a traditional system. There's always teachers pushing the boundaries and trying innovative things to make things work even within the traditional system. So I think it's really more a question of how the management structures of education have shifted over time. And what we're seeing is, is a real neoliberal shift in governance. And what that means for schools is increased standardized testing, increased kind of surveillance about what's going on in the classroom and what's going on with students and teachers. And that's resulting in a kind of culture of fear so that there's less teachers like Dan who are willing to really push the boundaries and talk about social justice because they fear retribution. They fear losing their jobs or being punished in, in some ways because it deviates from teaching to the test. And so I think we need to be able to couch this in a broader conversation about the governance structures that are impacting schools. Because I think when you really ask students what they want, when you really ask families what they want, all of the time it's about community-involved engaging lessons. Mm -hmm. They want to have relevant and meaningful education experiences and opportunities to learn in community and get to know one another and do the things that make learning exciting. And yet our system reflects back this sort of prison-like model of <laughs> needing to go through <laughs> needing to go through all of these tests and competition and, and a highly valuing individualism, right? Yeah. So I think it's a, a, an interesting thing. And, and just to throw some love back Dan's way, I think I was working in, in the idea of doing social justice education for a long time, but because I'm not a teacher, I would get a lot of pushback from that. And when Dan entered the public system in Edmonton public, everything shifted because he's so 
awesome and doing such a great job advocating in terms of all the things that we should be thinking about in social justice education. He opened so many doors for people to be able to have these conversations, for people to be able to think about starting social justice clubs in their schools and really created this open space for all of our student groups to, to come together and join forces. So it's really changed the landscape of what social justice education looks like in Edmonton. And, and now with RAD, we're really starting that work all over Alberta and it's it's been really exciting to be part of. Thank you. Now, in reference to the recent waves of events and actions like the Black Lives Matter in the US, as you mentioned, Julia, and the What's Wooden protests in Canada, such events challenge the narrative of democracy leaders of these countries and in general materializes their racist and colonial foundations. I wonder then, what should be the role of educators in these movements? I think you're right, Louise. When you think about the role of education, I think a lot of there's a, there's a lot of room for critique around upholding colonial narratives and really schools as a site of nation building, right? And so what does that mean? How are schools implicated when there's movements that are resisting these pieces. And for me, education has always been that space where it can also be the space for counter narratives and for us to talk about resistance. Even though there's this long legacy of colonialism, there's also a long legacy of resistance to colonialism. And for me, education is that space where we get to talk about all of it. And I I think that's one of the reasons I'm really drawn to, to working in education because there's room for that. And there's hope and opportunity in that. And so our role as educators is really to open up those spaces to how can we make room for people in these very traditional and conservative spaces, and you're accurate in in your depiction of that, to get to know what these resistance and counter narratives have really been about. What are these movements really about? What are these bigger questions that we're asking? And how can we grapple with that as a society? So for me, it's about how do we provide students skill sets on being able to read the world in that way? How can we help students ask those questions of themselves to figure out where they stand and what they want to do about how do they want to join the movement? How do they want to participate in the world? The other piece about it that I think is really critical is that we are on Treaty 6 territory and we always have been. And so a really big part of, I think, when we're thinking about citizenship skills with students is citizenship to what, right? So citizenship to a colonial nation state. I prefer Elder Lewis Cardinal's depiction of Canada as a verb, right? So Lewis Cardinal talks about how when Canada was named, they dropped an N, it used to be Canatan, which meant clean, pure, and sacred. And it changed to Canada, which meant to make this place clean, pure, and sacred. So a really big part of our relationship to the land and our relationship to Treaty 6 is talking about how we can help students to protect this place, how we can be good stewards of the land, and how we can help keep this place clean, pure, and sacred. And that's a really big part of our treaty responsibilities as educators. With treaty partnership comes commitments and obligations and responsibilities that we need to uphold. And that's a really big part of our role as educators. You know, I think the purpose of education is it's never just to just bring students into the conformity of what the majority of a nation think, even though that's what it's been used for in a lot of cases. But as teachers who are committed to equity and, and social justice, is that we have to critique the dominant narratives that have shaped our society and shaped our nation and, and especially the colonial narratives that have done that here. And, and to think about as Julia was saying, like, what are our responsibilities to treaty? How are we accountable to that as 
myself a guest on Treaty 6 territory? How do I use my role as an educator for students to question the colonial narratives that they grew up with? And like, as an example, my, in the class I was teaching this year, we were talking about Louis Riel, like every student has learned about Louis Riel. But even now in, in 2021, my students just a few years ago, when they learned about Louis Riel, learned about him as a, a traitor to Canada and committed treason against Canada. Oh, wow. the, the colonial narrative of Louis Riel, not a, a freedom fighter, a hero for the Métis people. And it's amazing how dominant these narratives are. And so our, our job as critical educators is to confront these narratives and provide counter narratives to who we are and to who we want to be and, and think about that idea. Like social justice is action to me. It's not like learning is, is, is a integral part of that, but being able to take action in our communities, in our society towards making the world a better place, a more just place, a more equitable place is really what we want every young person to be able to do, you know, regardless of their profession moving on. And, and so much of education has been shaped by that neoliberal narrative that education is about finding work, finding a job, and not about building the humanity and young people learning about empathy and, and critical thinking and, and questioning why the world is the way it is. And, and is this the best we can do? Can we think about different ways we can organize our society, take care of each other, and commit ourselves to the, the real spirit and intent of the treaty that we're all you know, bound to and and to think about these pieces in a in a more critical, reflective way, I think is how we deconstruct a narrative of Canada that's been very harmful for a very long time. That can lead a lot of young people to a really challenging position because if you've been told that Canada is a peaceful, tolerant, multicultural nation where nothing bad has ever happened, and then you enter a classroom and someone tells you all these really negative stories that that's happened in Canada's past and that's happening currently, it can be a quite a bit of a worldview challenge or conflict even. And so you have to kind of make space for that unease and that discomfort to take place. But our, our the role of education within a society to me is, is just about critical thinking, empathetic human beings who can collectively be together in a space to make that the most equitable and just space possible and to really confront the issues of our time. Like how do we reduce prejudice, discrimination, stereotypes, oppression within our world. Like that's our job is to be part of that solution. I don't think education can solve it by itself. Of course not. But I think we have a large role to play in, in that story as well. So when we talk about building this space like to empower students to challenge narratives and participate in the, let's say, the construction of, of this, of, uh, let's say, this post-colonial nation to a more inclusive society, one has to bring curriculum development into the conversation. And that's, to my line of thinking, that relies on the teachers. They're being trained to kind of deliver curriculum and think about curriculum, but it's also about school board decision. So could you provide the listeners with insights into what building a provincial or national curriculum entails and uh, how much agency does the community have over its development? So I was on the curriculum development committee back in 2016 until, well, technically up until about a few months ago, but I haven't been there in a couple of years. I haven't had a meeting in a long time. And, and our job in 2016 under the NDP government was to, to rewrite the curriculum. And, and so essentially myself and about 60 other socialist teachers got in a room probably every other month and hashed out what should be in, in curriculum. And really that was a, a process that was among teachers about what should be in the curriculum. Now, there's lots of different 
ways that could have, should have been laid out in the framework in which we build curriculum. I think it wasn't a perfect system by any means, but uh, you know, there were some developments that were being made in that sense, but what we're facing right now under the shift under the UCP government is that, you know, they've hired a, a basically a, a racist curriculum developer, a white supremacist curriculum developer and Chris Champion uh, to shape curriculum. And if you look at the documents that they put out so far, you know, they put forward that they're trying to put together an objective curriculum that's based on facts and truth and all these kinds of things that they say, but it's the most ideologically driven curriculum you could imagine, shaping curriculum to produce a certain type of citizen, essentially, one that falls in line with the ideology of the UCP party, and to look at Western civilization as ideal and or superior. It's a really problematic and a really big challenge that educators in Alberta are going to be faced with moving forward in terms of how quickly this curriculum gets placed into our classrooms. And so the real challenge for educators in Alberta is literally, how are you going to subvert this work in your classroom? Because you're not going to be able to ethically teach this knowing that this is backwards curriculum, that this is curriculum that is harmful to all the young people that you you have in your classroom. And so to kind of connect to what, what Julia is saying about like the idea of activism, activism works that we really need to organize as educators along with parents, along with students and other community members to really push back on these advances because curriculum is so important to telling the story of who we are and to help young people develop skills like critical thinking and questioning and organizing and all these kinds of things we want young people to be able to to have. But we have to start thinking about ourselves as, as activists, as teachers. And I know that can be a, a, a long shift and not, and not a lot of teachers would call themselves activists as well, but that's a, that's a big shift. I think we need to work on in terms of, of how we look at our profession and our responsibility to the system of education. To me, we are the stewards of the system. And, and if we're not fighting and advocating and pushing it to be better then what are we doing, right? Like what's the point of us? It's, it's not a job where you just cash a paycheck you know, put in your lessons and, and that's it. It's we are really have an opportunity to help shape a really important institution within our society that takes care of young people and, and ensures that young people have the opportunity to see themselves and their learning and have a say in their learning and to learn these important skills. And, you know, that the type of society that we're going to have in the future is dependent upon the education that a lot of young people receive. If we're not telling the stories of all the people who've made this area home, of the resistance to colonialism, if we're not telling all the different stories that exist, if we're only telling one narrative to construct conformity to a UCP ideology, then, then we're, uh, we're in tough shape. So I'm looking forward to building capacity. I think that's what RAD really, I think, seeks to do is to, to build community and connections, but to also move people to see themselves as not just an educator, but also an activist, that part of the role of an educator is being an activist and to uh, break down stereotypes of what an activist is as well. And to think about the different ways that activism can look like working within and outside of institutions. And so there's a lot of different roles there, but I think curriculum in Alberta is in a really dangerous spot under the UCP. And I think it's going to take a big, uh, a lot of momentum, a lot of organizing between educators and parents and, and students in the community to really push back and to ensure that any curriculum that gets put into schools, is a lot better than what they've put forward so far. I want to just mention kind of on the last part, which is really about how do community members have an opportunity to shape what's being taught in schools and to shape kind of the impacts of their school system. And I think what we need to remember here is that schools have a duty to be responsive to communities. Schools are situated within communities and activism works 
And so, you know, one of the things that's happening after George Floyd and the movement for Black Lives Matter, which is still continuing and it had a long history before George Floyd as well, schools are now being more responsive to the calls to anti-racism. And there's a long hill to go there. And, and Dan and I could talk about this for hours, I'm sure, about all of the barriers that are put in place structurally oh, yeah. in terms of getting anti-racism <laughs> work off the ground in schools. But educators are taking note. I've seen in every teacher's professional growth plan to look at anti-racism. I see it on the agenda of, of principles for professional learning. The superintendents are talking about it. So it's on the docket more than it ever was before. That's a cue to say schools are trying to be more responsive to what communities are asking for. It doesn't mean they're succeeding. In fact, they're still failing. But I think I think it's it's about the fact that activism works. You know, I think about the students doing a walkout in 2013 against Redford's cuts to education. And they were calling for having a voice in the policy decisions that were being made at that time. They were talking about, you know, you're cutting all of the things to us that make our school lives enjoyable and engaging. And you didn't consult us on those cuts before they were made. And all of the students won that fight. They got, for the first time, a student trustee position was created after that 2013 walkout. So students have a chance to shape kind of their future of what happens. And not to mention the fact that we have democratically elected school board trustees. And that's a huge one right there. Um, I think coming up in our, in our current election cycle for 2021 in October, we need to be keeping a very close eye on who's being elected into to represent our school boards um, because they're going to have a huge say in what's happening in schools and making policies that are going to impact the lives of all of our students. And so that's a huge opportunity to, again, shape what we want our school systems to be. Are we going to elect people that don't care about treaty rights, that don't care about the truth and reconciliation's calls to action, that don't care about GSAs being available in schools? Or are we going to elect trustees that actually are going to make sure they protect those pieces um, that in schools and make sure that they put in policies that are encouraging anti-racism professional development to be happening in schools and so on and so forth. We need to be thinking about how we're engaging with our democratic governance structures that really do impact schools on the ground level. So as a final point and cap the conversation, we see that the UCP's blue ribbon panel gave these kind of double meaning language that they used to introduce the suggestions they introduced and one was we're making schools respond to parents like what parents want we're giving parents the choice to decide over the type of education they want for the kid yeah it's a good talking point of the ucp isn't it to say that this is what parents want but i think what we have to think about is how we define public education and at what point is public education accessible. So I think educators are always in a really unique position where we are defending public education from austerity governments like the UCP, right? Trying to maintain the point that young people can access a good quality education for free and not have vouchers because it's the moment you introduce vouchers or charter schools, essentially what you're doing is you're chipping away at public education and a move towards privatization, right? And you can frame it in any way you want as like alternatives or options or choice. And they're really good at their marketing of how they frame it, but essentially what it is is a road towards privatization and, and chipping away at the public good of public education. So educators to me are always in this really unique position where 
We are defending public education within the public realm and ensuring that what we have remains open to all, is accessible, is equitable, and all these things. But at the same time, our job is to bring some heat to the public education system to, because it's not equitable currently. It is very inequitable. The structures we have within our education system from standardized testing to academic streaming, our disciplinary practices, policies within schools are inherently inequitable and students within the margins of our education system experience that inequity on a daily basis. So we have to bring the heat internally as well and outwardly as well with those conversations deserve to be held in public. That is our, our job and, and really the march of privatization with this current government that we're in is going to continue to beat strong as long as they are in power. That's their goal is, I mean, if you look at any of their past documents, what they've written, the conferences they go to on their view of education is to completely privatize it. And so they're going to keep pushing and chipping away at that privatization agenda as long as they can. So our job is to envision a public education system that is truly equitable. And I think one of the things I struggle with is that I don't know if we can just reform education in its current format. And I think about, you know, the work that folks are doing in the States with the abolitionist teaching network. What if you abolish an education system and build it from the ground up? What does that look like? How would you get the public on board for something like that? What are the steps towards these things? And what is a truly equitable education system? How do you design that? What is What are the structures of that? And it's, those are exciting conversations and really fun conversations. But we always have to be aware that austerity-driven governments, you know, they see public education as a, as a burden and essentially want to privatize it with the ideological belief that privatization equals better. But we all know it's not, and we know that's even more equitable and have catastrophic effects on our society. So yeah, really about navigating yourself as an educator within the system and then outside as well in terms of how we protect public education, because we know that public education fails a lot of young people and we need to have that conversation as well and not just kind of have this one-sided defend public education, but never critique it. Like it's, there's more nuance there that we need to pick apart, I think. Yeah, absolutely, Dan. And, and, you know, I love what you said earlier about teachers' role as being stewards of education, and that couldn't be more relevant in this conversation right now. I think it's really important to underscore that public education is a collective pooling of resources to provide the best possible opportunities for all students, right? So we're talking about every single student, whereas voucher systems are really a way for us to pool money from a small pot of people and create have and have not schools. So we really need to be careful on this road of the voucher system on the road to privatization, because what we're doing is creating that have and have not system where it might solve one parent's problem, but it definitely creates more inequities for the majority of students and research shows that these voucher systems and charter school systems are catastrophic for results and for, for collective good. So we know that Alberta has one of the best public education systems in the world. We are already a district of choice. So any kind of education philosophy that you're wanting to pursue in Edmonton, you can. <laughs> so I think it's really important to realize that we already protect parents' right of choice in this system right now that we have, but we do it at the betterment of all students and not to the detriment of privileging a few that have the means to provide funding for what they're hoping to see. And a bigger part of this conversation is that public education right now is currently underfunded. So some of the biggest things that we're seeing in terms of the inequities that are happening, especially if we look at students that have special learning needs that need to be considered, 
we are not meeting the mark. We do not have the adequate funding for providing the best opportunities possible for these students. And voucher systems are not going to make that better. What we need is a properly funded education system that has the democratic oversight. And so when you're talking about what really happens when we go down this path, what we lose in the voucher system is the democratic oversight of these schools. Our school systems right now are publicly accountable. And the more we go into privatization, the more we lose that public accountability. And that's the key point that I think needs to be really highlighted for everybody in this current fight, is that even though our public education system is not perfect, we have a lot of educators that are working really hard to make it better. And right now we have public accountability. And the more we go down this road towards privatization, we become more inequitable, our schools are going to fail in achievement. We're going to do worse in results. All evidence points to that. And we lose the most important piece, which is that public accountability piece so that we can actually be responsive to what our communities and public want. So I think that's a really important piece, but I love the points Dan is making too about how we are in a tricky position of being both advocates for our students and trying to make the system better while also not wanting to fuel the fire of talking about why the public education system is failing. So we're, we're on this really tricky balancing act right now of advocating for public education, knowing that that's the best opportunity to provide quality education for all students. And that's what we really care about. So now just to kind of close up the interview, what are you most hopeful about in your career as educator? And in your case, Julia, what gets you more hopeful about your profession? Oh, I really love this question, you know, and the students are what give me hope. They are more conscientious, thoughtful, and creative. And when I think about the future of people who are stewarding really good collective movements, I think that our students are those people. They are the wonderful, wonderful humans that that our future is in good hands. But I've been really excited about this quote by AOC in which she's talking about hope as a discipline and really doing your actions every day that are going to foster hope, right? So how are we working with our students to provide these collective spaces for community building? How are we working with our students to make meaningful relationships in the community? What are we doing to really come together as a collective and really foster collective values? And that's the type of work that's giving me hope. And I think that's the work of our education system. And it's really the antidote to some of our current ills that we're facing as a society. So I have all the hope in the world for what's to come. I love what our students show me every day. Like, oh my gosh, if I could just show you some of the things that that they do, they are absolutely inspirational. And so I think there's a ton to be hopeful for. So thanks for that question. Yeah, Julie, I'm glad you brought up the AOC quote when you first shared that with us on the RAD team. It was just a, a beautiful quote to, to think about like, I think we're taught to go searching for hope, but to think of hope as a, as a discipline really shifted that perspective for me. And then I really love the way that AOC framed that, you know, obviously I'm going to, my answer would be very similar to Julia's with is the young people we get to work with. Like, it's just, I, I can't understate or underscore how much of a privilege it is to do what, what I'm able to do and to be around the young people I'm able to be around and, and learn alongside them and to watch their passions grow and to see the work that they get involved in grow and, and not just like, work they do in the school, but the work they start to do in the community and how they get involved. 
it's beautiful. It's, it's really, really beautiful. And in education, we often talk about sometimes we don't see the results of the seeds that we're planting right away. That sometimes we have to wait a little bit for those seeds to grow into flowers and to bloom. But when they do, it's a really, really special moment that you get to play a little bit of a small role in in the life of another human being or in a community to help them on their journey. Where we're going with education and where it is. And I I say this with a little bit of a asterisk that I don't want to sound like (laughs) the weight of the entire future is on the young people. I think there's more of a collective effort that we need to put on there because I think we look at the youth. But as a teacher, my, my job is to look with young people and to to see how they're making sense of this and how they're taking on the challenges and, and how, you know, we can learn from them because I think like young people have such a remarkable way of seeing the world and, and making sense of the world and advocating for what is right. And I think following their lead is what our role as educators is right now. And really our job is to make space for them because I mean, you spend one day in a classroom and you can't help but walk away with some hope that the world is going to be all right, that things are going to be okay. And just as a, as a history teacher, as a social studies teacher, like the world is filled with so many stories of ordinary folks organizing together to address an issue. And that's been a part of our story forever. And so the more stories we can tell of, of regular folks getting together and talking about issues in their community and, and how we're going to address this and, and make sense of it and create a little justice and equity in our world, like those are the stories we want to tell. And now we get the opportunity to create those stories in our communities right here and right now and to play our role in making this world a better place. You know, oftentimes right now there's a lot of despair in the world with, you know, dealing with this pandemic and climate change and all the things that we're dealing with. But, you know, we don't get to decide what kind of world we're born into, but we can decide what we're going to do with our time here. So, you know, we're going to use that time wisely. And, and I'm lucky I get to spend my time and I know Julie feels the same, spend our time with young people trying to figure this out and make the world a better place. And it's a really privileged lucky positions. I, like I said earlier, I can't believe I get paid to do this. So I just feel very lucky at the moment and hopeful. Very well put, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, guys. You guys have been amazing. And I'm very jealous of your students because I wish my teachers had the opportunity to do that when I was uh, in high school age. Do you guys have any plugs for your club or uh, for your club, for your organization? Any we could be a club. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I think with RAD is what we're hoping for to continue doing is the basic thing that we've always done is build community and relationships with folks to give strength to the work that they're doing to help engage teachers in the converse or educators in the conversation about what this work looks like and how we can empower each other to do this work in our schools and then also take it to the next level of how do we actually become the defenders of public education that we need to be. And, and so there's some things going on, but in terms of events coming up, I, Julie, do we have, what's, what's on the docket for us? So, you know, I, I would encourage listeners to join the Rad Educators Network, join our online presence. So we have a really active Facebook group where you can find upcoming details for events. So if you consider yourself an educator, a community member that cares about education, we would love to have you as part of our group. So some of the things that we do in Rad Educators is create spaces for community dialogue. So these are happening on Thursday nights right now. We have an event coming up called Thoughtful Thursdays where we're kind of interviewing some 
amazing guest speakers and kind of providing space for people to do professional learning. Um, so we would be uh, looking at responsibility as educators on Treaty 6 territory, for instance, that would be one of the ones coming up. So these are the types of events that we have brewing. And then we also have a group of educators that are working on some broader responses to the austerity measures coming down from the UCP government. And I think those are also really important pieces to create some broad support for. So if you're a community member that's listening and you want to support advocacy measures against attacks on our public education system, we would also love to have you be part of it. So there's, there's lots of ways to get involved coming up in the future. Anything else you want to add, Dan? Yeah, just that. I really want folks listening to know that when we say educator, we mean that really broadly, right? Like artists, activists, community educators, early childhood educators, professors, researchers, teachers, anyone who's involved in education. I think the broader of a network we can have, the more opportunity we can work together to really build those coalitions within our community to to resist what this government is currently doing, but also build something better too. So there's lots of opportunity, a lot of exciting work there. And I think there's a lot of ways we can connect with what other activists and communities are doing in, in Edmonton and Alberta and beyond. Awesome. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. No this was fun. brings us to the end of this week's episode of Adam and Eve, Edmonton's only feminist news program. We produce this week's show in the studios of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada on Treaty 6 territory. We are grateful to be in the traditional territory of the diverse indigenous peoples of this land. We recognize that colonialism is ongoing and violent. We encourage you to reflect on your own relationship further and ask what accountability would look like here in practice for yourself, the communities that you are part of, and the larger systems that shape our daily access and opportunity. Thank you so much to Dan Scratch and Julia Dahlman for being our guests on today's episode. And we wanted to thank Luis Cifuentes for conducting the interview and Wen Chan for editing. I've been your host, Rose Eva Forbes Jenkins, and I found it very fascinating to think about the possibilities that education has for being a space for co-creating knowledge and activism within our communities. Adamant Eve is a spoken word project of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Alberta, and our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. For more information on our program, and to send us any feedback, please contact us on our Facebook page under Adamant Eve. We're always looking for more volunteers to help out, so if you're interested in learning any aspect of radio production, just get in touch. Thank you so much for tuning in, and have an adamant evening.